Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, where we teach you how to navigate the complex world of diet and exercise with medical and pragmatic views of the human body. Join Dr. Andrew Appleton and me as we give you the tools and resources to prevent and reverse lifestyle-driven diseases while optimizing fitness and getting the body you want. Enjoy today's episode. Official. Do you have your list in front of you? I do have the article up here, yeah. Okay, because I'll be honest, I haven't reviewed it since the Come first time on. you sent it. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had a busy, have had a busy oh, day today. I'm so busy. Uh, yeah. So, so I'll be, I'll be learning and responding on the fly. Here we go. Like, um, yeah, I mean, the busy brag. That's as yeah, per I usual. <laughs> no, I didn't say I was busy doing anything important or meaningful. <laughs> Just busy. that's right. Just doing stuff all the time. Yeah. The wall. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Okay. Well, this is our first recording in 2024. Yeah, we were supposed to record a couple of weeks ago, and then I had a power power outage in my little yeah. rural yeah, village. Yeah, Tommy lives live out in, here. Um, in a little house on the prairie, and yeah, the <laughs> couldn't fire up the tractor as a backup generator. Very sad. Yeah, yeah, but here we <laughs> are. are. All right, so at least so this is the end of January, and most people have given up on their resolutions by now. So it's a great time to talk about uh, the future health trends of the remainder of the year. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't take people, people long um, while we're on the topic to, to give up on their health trends. And I usually find <clears throat> being in the industry that I'm in very few people who are hot out of the gate in at the beginning of the year who weren't already well invested in their health in December or November or October, uh, very few of them gain enough traction to keep it consistent, usually revert right back to uh, their old patterns, which is probably what led them to require a, a New Year's resolution in the first place, right? As you're, you're at that, that time of year again, where you ate too much, you drank too much, you're feeling particularly bad about yourself, and the, the pain is just enough to push you into action. And you also have you know, all the advertisements and access to some sort of solution in your face at that time of year. But if you don't fundamentally change who you are and the decisions you make or what your motivations are, like if none of that stuff changes, then it's, there's no real sustainable opportunity to, to make a difference. Because we know sure who, some who you are isn't that. good enough. So you must change. <laughs> precisely precisely i mean i wouldn't have framed it that oh, way really but, oh yeah okay. i was just, yeah, just paraphrasing <laughs> for you just yeah. you know trying to summarize for the for the audience um yeah yeah so this time of year you're you're bombarded with all sorts of different health related articles in the media and i find a lot of it really deeply uh frustrating a lot of uh, a lot of misinformation out there and uh, a lot of sort of quick fix type stuff that I think people find exciting, uh, especially at this time of year. So I pulled this article, uh, which I'd sent to you, which is like, it's called the health trends for 2024. And it lists the the top 10 health trends that are going to come up this year that people need need to navigate. So I just thought we'd, you'd use that as a framework for the conversation and touch on each one and and see, is there is there a there there? Yeah, there's a I don't want to sewer the whole the whole <laughs> podcast episode, but it's worth people considering just 
you know, to, to have a, a high level view on this stuff. Anything that is a trend is by definition likely ineffective, which is what makes it a trend. The idea is coming and going, right? And anything that, that, that comes and goes is, is probably not the thing that you need. Uh, but the thing that you need requires a significant level of effort and consistency and commitment most of the time. And we don't like those things as human beings. So we get, uh, we romanticize this idea of like the new trend, whether it's a gadget or a specific workout methodology or this new, you know, this new nutritional direction that people are taking and getting these fabulous results where we go, oh, okay. It's not all of these poor decisions I've been making or my inability to consistently make decisions that I know I should be making. I've just been missing this trend, which is likely where both of our disdain for the idea of, you know, 2024 health trends uh, stems from. Yeah, absolutely. With that being said, though, the first one is longevity. <laughs> so so I, <laughs> yes. think, I think what they've done is they've kind of taken buzzwords and then, uh, you know, tried to put some some meat on the bone of those things. Um, no doubt there has been a lot more talk of, of longevity lately, particularly uh, with, you know, guys like Peter Tia and Andrew Huberman, who uh, discuss ways to increase health span in addition to lifespan. Um, but then the, the things that are cited as potentially longevity boosters, and who doesn't want to live longer, are uh, NMN supplementation, resistance training, plant-based diets, and intermittent fasting. Okay. Yeah. And there's, there's something, there's certainly something to some of those. <laughs> the first thing I want to say about uh, the longevity trend is, again, when we think about the way the general public would view longevity, it's what are simple things I can do that require less effort that will help me live longer? And that's really what people are after when it comes to longevity. It's like, what supplements can I take? Like what sort of five to 10 minute habit hack can I add into my life that's going to remove the grinding day-to-day -day responsibility of eating well and exercising? I mean, I'm happy to see that resistance training is on yeah. there. Uh, and of course, there's there's probably something to, to intermittent fasting as well. Um, although most people probably look at intermittent fasting as a way to not have to fundamentally change change their diet. Yeah, I think well, from a longevity standpoint, um, certainly there there is zero evidence in in human populations that intermittent fasting will increase lifespan because those studies, I mean, they don't exist logistically. They would be basically impossible because you have to wait for people to die, <laughs> and if you're you're trying to get them to live longer, then your study is going to have to be you know, 50 plus years, depending on when you start. So that's a bit of an issue. And, and that so this is all extrapolated information from we know that by uh, intermittent fasting, other beings like C. elegans worms, for example, mice, um, then you can actually extend lifespan. It's usually actually sex dependent. Uh, so the males tend to get a little more bang for the buck in intermittent fasting and like rodent models. And so we've kind of just blown that up and, and extrapolated that to humans. And people go, great, if mice can live longer, so can I, which doesn't really make any sense uh, because of metabolic rates and whatnot. So when you fast a mouse for a day or even a portion of a day, it's like a human fasting for a week. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's not even close to, uh, 
to even an apples to oranges comparison. So I'm, I'm not sure from a longevity standpoint how much merit there is to that. Um, the NMN supplementation. So NMN is uh, nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is basically a substrate used by our mitochondria in the electron transport chain to create ATP, which is the, the fuel source that we use for, for energy production in, in our cellular processes. So why not just crush more NMN as a supplement and that will give you more fuel for your mitochondria and therefore make you live longer and be healthier. So again, this is one of these things where there is a huge amount of predatory uh, clinics out there that will offer you up IV, you know, uh, NMN uh, infusions at a, an exorbitant cost. And there's literally like very little, very little evidence to no evidence that this actually uh, would cause a significant benefit. And of course, the people who are doing this are generally already healthy. And so stand, you know, even even less to gain uh, for that. So I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that, but the resistance training for sure, of course, I mean, absolutely. So gaining muscle mass, gaining function, that no doubt will make you live uh, a better, more functional life. And I'm assuming when they when they're talking about resistance training being a trend, they mean as opposed to the usual like cardio driven workouts that people would typically gravitate towards for their health needs. Resistance training is slowly becoming more popularized, especially in women, which where, you know, for a long time it was seen as the type of exercise that men would do. Uh, and would create a masculine figure, which is not what what most women desire. So it's it's a transition from like a cardio centric society to like resistance training. Like resistance training is the new like treadmill, basically. Like resistance training is the new cardio, which is great. I fully support that. Yeah, I mean, everyone should do should do both. I just posted a, a pretty a pretty good study the other day. Uh, came out a couple of weeks ago that was just comparing. Uh, cardiovascular training alone to resistance training alone to a combination of the two and no surprise the combination of both uh, outperformed either in isolation and all the metrics that they measured I think the only place where it didn't make a difference was in uh, was in blood glucose levels but everywhere else as far as you know weight loss fat loss skeletal muscle mass uh, the different sort of cardiovascular measures that they use the combination of the two uh, seem to outperform. And that might, that an element of that might just be total output. I'm not really sure what sort of controls that they put on there, but you know that those different forms of exercise, putting them into the three basic categories of there's resistance training, there's steady state cardio, and then there's the higher intensity, higher work rate cardio. We know that there are specific benefits to be gained from each one of those types of exercise. So it should be obvious that only doing one is going to give you less than uh, a combination of, of all three. For sure. And if you have time constraints, there's actually a ton of evidence that the, the higher intensity interval training, so HIT is um, probably the best uh, return on investment for time constraints. Yeah. And there's a strength training element to most HIIT right. training and it's very dynamic and it's not, you know, the steady state cardio is very one dimensional. Uh, whereas HIIT training, there's a lot more to it than just cardio or a high heart rate. You know, the, the, the types of movements you have to do 
and the way that you have to do them in order to elevate your heart rate to that level implies some amount of you know dynamism yeah. and uh and strength elements as well are you ready for number two sure this is one of my least favorite terms biohacking yeah well <laughs> the, like the whole idea of of health trends is essentially biohacking right. isn't it or hacking of, of yeah, some so ha- sort like maybe hacking, not bio particularly hacking means you're taking a shortcut right it's, it's like yeah. how how can i get something for as little input as possible or is is there a way around actually having to put in put in the work so that I think there, it's not really a well-defined term, and that's part of the problem. But some of the examples that they give are, you know, changes to diet, ensuring getting sunlight and fresh air every day. I, I don't know if I would consider that a biohack. I think that's just going outside. Um, but then cold water immersion and sauna, for sure, I think would fall under the, you know, the trendy biohacking sphere. There is evidence for both of these things for different reasons, but I don't think in the way that it's been packaged and sold via Instagram or TikTok or whatever, where somebody's got like a big chest freezer in their garage filled with water and they get in it every morning and post it on Instagram. You're like, my immune system is in such good shape now (laughs) and all that. And you're just like, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, I would say that like I do I do all of those things. Like I do some form of cold exposure and I do some form of, of heat exposure, even if it's just like hot baths, something like that. But it's just it's just another form. They're just additional forms of stress, which are perhaps not necessary. And while while clearly beneficial, I don't know that I don't know how unique the benefits are to those modalities, meaning I don't know that you have to ice bath. I don't know that you have to sauna to get the majority of the benefits that are that that are proposed of those different modalities. And I'm also not sure if of course doing something like an ice bath is going to get you colder, faster and in a more significant way than you know going outside and shoveling your driveway when it's minus 5 without bundling yourself up. <laughs> fully before you go out but i'm willing to bet uh different forms of cold exposure just being allowing your body to be cold sometimes allowing your body to heat up sometimes rather than always fighting against discomfort whether that's not sleeping at night with a 23 degree set thermostat you know letting that drop to 17 degrees overnight or when it's uh when it's when it's hot outside get outside and be hot and do activities outside that aren't necessarily high demand but enough to make you sweat and make your body have to react to that stressor uh i think doing those sorts of things is likely going to get you 90 percent of what anyone's going to get from from the other ones and let's be honest a sauna is not cheap or accessible to most people and a cold tub is a I bet less than 99 out of 100 people are ever going to submerge themselves in like three to five degree water on a routine basis. Right. So like, yeah, it's great that you can say that this is like a biohack, but like we mentioned with, with healthy user bias, the type of person who's going to get into an ice bath every single day is already 
uh, a health and fitness psychopath in <laughs> exactly. some form. Yeah. Like if you're willing, because I can tell you, I've like, I have the first time I ever did an ice bath was in 2006 when I worked at the Fowler Kennedy uh, sports clinic as a rehab therapist there. That's when I started. It's I've probably done an ice bath 200 plus times since then. It's never enjoyable. It's never like there. you have zero tolerance for it. It does it does not get easier over time and there's nothing about it that's fun. But I will say like I do it more for mood for myself than anything else. Not all these like different sorts of fantastical longevity benefits. But when on days when I ice bath and I mean like ice bath cold as cold as I can possibly get it. It just elevates my mood in a way that makes me more tolerant and tolerable and to me it's it's the effect that you would get from from the strongest type of pharmaceutical that that had that would have mood well, and, benefit and it's similar to that you know like the runner's high you know it's after you do a workout you feel better emotionally you're more even keeled I, I think it's similar to that and it sort of brings up the notion of the difference between eustress and distress so we want our bodies to be adaptable which means we need to expose ourselves to eustress, that's E-U stress, um, which is like when you exercise. So if somebody walked into my clinic and their blood pressure was 200, that's a major health problem. But if I took your blood pressure while you were doing a high intensity workout and your blood pressure was 200, that's a normal adaptive physiologic response. And that's exactly what we want to expose ourselves to, to make sure that when we do have those illnesses or injuries or things that come up, then our body is already in an adaptive state to be able to manage the stress that comes along with that. And I, I think honestly, that's yeah. probably what, what these things and the exposure to the extremes of temperature are probably uh, best at getting us to uh, you know, regulate our homeostatic systems that way. Yeah. And it's all about the dosage, right? Because anything yeah. that is good for you is also bad for you when it comes to stress. Yeah. You don't want to make yourself hypothermic or hyperthermic so that your actual <laughs> core body temperature, you're in that exposure for long enough for it to drop because then body systems start to shut down and your body actually goes into distress mode. Yeah. It's not, it's not a more is better scenario. And that's yeah. kind of, and, the, and I think that's part of the problem. There's, there's very little information on like proper protocols, but a lot of people like pseudo experts will put, you know, here's my morning protocol and here's what I do. It's okay. But that's great for you. I'm not, I'm honestly not sure how much uh, physiologic evidence there is behind this. Yeah. And it doesn't take much. Like I'll give you an example before, before we move on. I know you don't want to stay in here forever, but in the early days of ice baths, like my first sports training facility that I owned, I had an ice bath there. And of course, I'm young and I'm a bit stupid and I, I, I push things quite a bit and see how far I can take certain things. So I, I did an ice bath and I just wanted to see how long I could stay in there. And the thing about ice baths is after a couple minutes, you you normalize to that cold pretty quick where it gets to the point where it's comfortable being in there. So you can stay in there a long time. And I got to the point where when I went to get out of the ice bath, I don't remember how long it was. I think it was almost 20 minutes, uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. When I got out, I could not, I could not walk. And then my body temperature, uh, I, I'm sure my, my actual core temperature didn't drop significantly, but it was on its way to dropping enough that it took me probably 12 to 14 hours 
to feel like I had recovered from the cold exposure and had had you know had low level signs of hypothermia and I was wrecked for a day and a half like yeah. I was exhausted for a day and a half after mm -hmm. that and that was that was a, a a quick lesson for me of the limitations of these types of things but the, some people would say like oh you could ice bath for you know 12 minutes 14 minutes 15 minutes like you put the wrong person in there for that period of time mm -hmm. like that can have a serious negative effect on yeah and that brings up a good point like if if you have like underlying health conditions, particularly cardiovascular conditions or cardiac disease of any kind, like I would be pretty hesitant to do these sorts of things because that can put a significant amount of, of stress and you probably should be cleared medically to make sure that it's okay to do those sorts of things and be sure that you're going to stand a, a benefit from it. But yeah, I mean, that's, it's <laughs> <that's> concerning. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a, it's it's not just that's not just me. Yeah. It's very typical of human beings of like if a little bit of this is good More for is me, better. a lot of it must be great uh, for me. That's right. Uh, and people need to be careful with that stuff, yeah. especially when it comes to like trying to access these stresses, yeah. right? Because it's the dosage is the most important part and it gets very unhelpful very quickly once you pass a certain Agreed. threshold. Number 3. Smart tech and wearables. Okay, so I'm going to say, I think for the right person, for the right reason, that there's absolutely benefit to be gained from certain wearables. For the right duration yeah, as well. Yeah, like personally, I I honestly don't really use any wearables with one exception is I have a watch that does my heart rate. So if I'm doing like zone two exercise, I want to be able to verify in addition to my rate of perceived exertion that I'm in my target heart rate range. That's honestly the only thing that, that I track. I, I think you do a little bit more than that. I haven't really dabbled in the, the sleep tracking stuff because I don't know, I feel like I can, I, I know when I got a bad sleep and I know when I got a good sleep just by based on how I feel and how many times I woke up during the night or my kids woke up during the night. Um, so I, I just, I haven't been able to convince myself that there's anything there that I would change and because here's the, here's the issue. So, you know, what, what you can measure, you will do things to try to change the outcome of the measurement, but it's not always that specific measurement that's available. That's really the important thing for us to track. Um, your thoughts. Yeah, I find that, and I've done tons of this stuff over the past, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years. I've, I've done lots of different uh, technologies as, as they've come out. And what I've realized is number one, most of those things are helpful for a limited period of time. If it becomes something that, that you, that you become obsessed with and it creates limitations on how you live your life based upon what the wearable is going to tell you, I, it can become problematic, but the good thing about wearables is when they drive you to make changes in a way that you wouldn't otherwise make if you didn't have to see some type of clear information, right? Even if the information isn't good, even if the information isn't accurate, the idea that you are going to have to look at something that is going to point out your bad behaviors if you do not behave in a, in a healthier way 
if that can drive someone to make positive changes, then I think that's the majority of the benefit to gain from those things. The big downside is number one, becoming obsessive about it. Number two, believing that the accuracy of the metrics is is beyond what it is actually capable of accurately reporting to you. And for instance, I've never been a great sleeper. Uh, and of course, like I have an aura ring, which I wear on and off. These days, I might wear it a total of a month out of a year. Uh, but there was a period of time where I wore it for basically a year straight and did my calculations on it every single day. Uh, and some nights I would close my eyes and feel like I slept the entire night through and wake up feeling great. And then I would look at my sleep stats and it would tell me the complete opposite. It would almost be like, oh shit, I felt great today. Now... <laughs> The, the, my feeling of having a good sleep is completely unjustified because this thing tells me that I've slept poorly. And it's like that to me, that is completely unhelpful. And like you mentioned, most people know when they haven't slept well, they know when they've slept good. And regardless of if you've statistically slept well or slept poorly, what matters is how you feel when you wake up the next day. No matter how much REM sleep or deep sleep or XYZ wave sleep you've gotten, if you wake up feeling poorly, that's bad. If you wake up feeling fresh and energized, that's good, which is really the metric that's, that should matter to people the most. So while technology, I think, can behaviorally, uh, behaviorally be helpful for people, I don't think the information is ultimately helpful in the long run. Yeah, I agree. And the, there are people who are really focused on numbers. And when you get hyper-focused on something, then it actually becomes a point of anxiety. And I've, I've literally had patients in the clinic who will show me their Apple Watch data, and they're really concerned that they're they're tachycardic uh, much of the time. And of course, you know, we do our our thing, and there's there's actually nothing wrong with the person. And it's like, have you considered that maybe you're just getting anxious seeing your heart rate data all the time, and that anxiety alone is is driving up your heart rate? Often people don't like to accept that, but we'll do a trial and say, well, just don't wear your watch for a month. And then we'll check in and see how it's going. And usually they're kind of like, you know what? I feel a lot better just not looking at it. Yeah. And if someone like, let's say someone is, is a moderate drinker, uh, you know, a few nights a week, they have a few drinks, a few nights a week, they don't have a few drinks, but they're looking at their data and they see that their overnight heart rate is 15 beats faster on nights that they drink than versus when they don't. That's information that can be very mm -hmm. helpful for someone because they see like, oh, there's clearly something happening when I drink alcohol that I would prefer didn't happen. And that can, that can actually help people to, to change their behavior in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. But it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword like most things where it can be as harmful as it is helpful. It's just how you use the tool and being honest about what you are and, and are not getting out of it rather than just wanting to believe so badly that this thing is helpful, that you're willing to just go through all these negative experiences, just trying to hang on to the idea that it's going to be the thing that you Yeah, need. and it's, it's interesting that the metrics kind of trend as well, kind of along the same theme. So the, the fitness influencer uh, metric that I hear about the most lately is heart rate variability. Um, so this, this is a known, a known measure. So uh, breath to breath, your heart rate actually changes. So as you breathe in, your heart rate will slightly 
speed up and as you breathe out your heart rate will slow down to some extent and you actually want heart or heart rate variability because that tells you that your vagal tone or parasympathetic activity is is reasonably active which is what we want when we're trying to rest and recover especially overnight and so you can get some of these smart watches that will measure that for you and then they'll tell you you know your your HRV is is high or it's low, uh, and then you can correlate that maybe with how you feel as well. But again, it's one of these. It's it's another number in a list of numbers that you get, and it's unless you can directly correlate that with the most important thing, which is the quality of life. It's it's hard to know what to do with that information. Um, but I think a lot of companies are are making a good amount of money by selling products that measure these things for you and and give you reports. Yeah, and the HRV one's another uh, is a good example for me because HRV technology has been around for quite a few years now, and I was certainly one of the early adopters of that. But any time it told me that my heart rate variability was so low that I should be resting and not doing anything, I just I would completely ignore right. it. It made it it didn't it didn't change the way I exercised at all, and I would just whenever it said like green light go like work out as hard as you can. I'd listen to that. And anytime it told me like, slow down, stop, you're pushing it too far. I would ignore that, that signal. Um, So like, that's a case where like, what's the point? Why do you continue to measure this every single day when it doesn't actually change the thing that you're doing versus, you know, the alcohol example where, you know, if it makes someone actually think about what they're doing and change it in a way that is unique to the, the information the technology is providing, then in that case, not always, but in that case, it, it can be a benefit. Yeah, I mean, alcohol will <clears throat> decrease your HRV. So it'll, it'll increase your uh, resting heart rate while decreasing the variability breath to breath. And so that's kind of a, yeah. a double whammy there, which which makes sense because yeah. alcohols, you're getting activation of your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, just to expand on the HRV thing for anyone who's who's interested in understanding when the body is under a unique amount of stress, whether it's because you're overworked or you're getting sick or, you know, you're, you're, you have some sort of underlying issue that the, the, the body's dealing with, the heartbeat come, becomes more consistent. Whereas like the time between heartbeats is very, very similar and the beat is very consistent where people would think, well, isn't your heartbeat consistent all the time? But when you're actually fresher, uh, and healthier, there's bigger differences between the time between heartbeats, right? Where it's like, it's not measurable to you, but to a technology, there's a difference between the space between beats. So uh, an irregular heartbeat, and we, of course, we're not talking about like fibrillation here. We're talking about in this sense of HRV, variation between beats is a signal of, you know, being in a healthier state where very consistent beats is a, uh, a signal of, of the body being under some type of undue yeah. stress. Most people would believe it's detected. Like if you check your pulse, your radial pulse, and take a really slow, long inhale, and then a slow exhale, and just notice the difference, the timing between beats, you should be able to, to notice a difference there. Um, you mentioned fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is like the most common arrhythmia that, that happens with people as they age. Uh, and it's one of the leading causes of embolic strokes as people age, but it's often undetected and it's often asymptomatic. Um, but the, uh, especially the Apple watch, the technology has gotten like to the point where it can detect atrial fibrillation quite accurately. 
And so that is potentially one benefit. If, you've, if you're older, if you're over 50, you've got some risk factors for heart disease, uh, then that alone, having the version that can detect uh, atrial fibrillation might actually be worthwhile. Yeah, I have the, uh, I have the Cardia um, technology and app. I don't know if you know too much about that. But again, like that's one of those, because I have like I have heart things in my family. Uh, you know, cardiovascular conditions in, in general are a problem in my family. So I'm in my 40s now. It's something that I want to keep an eye on. But again, sometimes I, I use it and it'll say that, you know, I, I have uh, a completely normal beat. And then when it's not normal, it won't say I have like atrial fibrillation, but it'll just be like, something's not right. We don't know what it is. Could be a technological <laughs> error. Could be something wrong with your heart. And if you pay this money for a subscription, we'll tell you more stuff about what this <laughs> means, which I thought was the, like, that should be an ethical violation of a technology that you're giving to someone and saying, like, we're, we're using this so someone can use it to track their own, uh, to track their own heart health. But then saying in order to actually access everything we want to give you within the technology, you have to pay us extra money in order to see other things that might be a problem that we could tell you right now, but we're not going to. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, it's like the police showing up at your door and be like, hey, Tommy, we have reason to suspect that your family is at great danger, um, but it's going <laughs> to yeah. cost you 500 bucks to find out what that danger is. Yeah, and it's like I already bought the I already bought the thing, and now you're telling me you're not going to give me all the information That's you incredible. could unless I pay you incredible. more money. Okay, Anyways. all right. The next one, and we've already kind of touched on it, is sleep hygiene. I don't see this as a health trend. I think this is just an everyday phenomenon that everybody needs to reflect on and do better. Uh, so, how do you actually? Yeah, maybe it's just. I was going to say maybe it's just a sign of of uh, of a lazy society where now it's like. <laughs> sleep culture everyone's accepted it now like i should be in bed for 12 hours it's Tw good 12 for my health. okay <laughs> i can't i can't i can't go to work to i can't be at work on time don't you know about sleep hygiene i need to be in my bed until it's 10 a.m it's a very gen z trend i would imagine yeah <laughs> yeah i hope you get uh an overwhelming amount of hate mail for that statement yeah, that's fine yeah <laughs> i know where i know what to do with that um, yeah, so you want to get that magical, you know, seven to nine hours of, of good quality sleep. So what are the things that we can do to enhance that? Well, obviously drinking a pile of alcohol before you go to sleep. Yeah, well, that'll, that'll help you. Once you sleep, right? Go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you'll necessarily be asleep, but you won't You're be. In a reduced state awake. of consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, in, in all seriousness, so I think probably the main thing that degrades people's sleep right now is, te is technology. It's having having the television on in the bedroom or, or looking at your phone scrolling before you go to bed and, and doing those last minute things, or just procrastinating on going to bed, uh, particularly for people who've got kids and they go to bed and then you, you know, you want to enjoy your own time on your own means. So you sit on the couch in the living room and watch TV for an unnecessary amount of time. Yeah. And it, this is one of those things where, yeah, sleep hygiene is all well and good, but people are going to be looking for the hack rather than just stop watching TV and go to bed earlier, yeah. which is like the ultimate sleep hygiene hack is go to bed earlier mm -hmm. and don't do all of those things that you're doing that, you know, you should do less of anyways before bed, yeah. which, uh, so like most people are not going to actually fundamentally change their habits in a right. meaningful way. They want to like, they want to go get those nerd orange lens 
glasses that Dave Asprey wears all the time and be like, this changes everything. I don't have to go to bed earlier or stop eating 3000 calories in front of the couch right up until it's time for me to go to sleep. I just want to put these nerd goggles on and that will solve all of my sleep problems and I'm pro sleep hygiene. Yeah, that's, that's it. You you solved it right there. Uh, yeah, so there's a million things people can do, yeah. but most of them, the but average person is not the other, going. The to other do. simple things that that you can do is obviously have a cool room, as we've already mentioned. Uh, make sure your room is dark. Like, don't have unnecessary light on. You don't need a night light. Like all these all these things. If you've got street lights that are blasting in through your window, like get some blinds, get some curtains to to stop that from happening. Um, and then the other thing though that's that's quite common is insomnia, uh, which is the inability to either get to sleep once when you go to bed initially, or if you wake up and then you have trouble getting back to sleep, like it's going to take you longer than than 15 minutes to get back to sleep in the middle of the night. And usually the story that people have with that is I go down, I, I lie down, I close my eyes, I turn everything off, and then my brain turns on. And I'm thinking about what I got to do and what happened today and what I got to do tomorrow and all this, my to-do list and just on and on and on. So that's a very real phenomenon. Um, we have a really busy anxiety provoking society. And so there's, there's a lot to, to pull apart there. And often there are some additional strategies that can come into play that, um, that can help you get better quality sleep. Um, but for that, you need to pay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you, you real honestly probably need to um, to talk to your family doctor or uh, or somebody about that. And in severe cases, like actually see a sleep specialist because there are there are definite um, you know there's there's cognitive behavioral therapy specifically for insomnia that can be really helpful uh, because a lot of it is it's the psychological piece. Yeah, or just drink more before there you go to bed. Well, that and that's that's probably the number one reason why you know you know, grandma's like, I got to have my brandy before I go to bed. <laughs> well, it's probably just to calm down, right? Yeah. So see, that's a sleep hygiene hack. Top sleep hygiene There you hack. go. Booze before Perfect. bed. Perfect. <laughs> uh, okay, number five, digital detox. Yeah, so again, all well and good. I fully support mm-hmm. it. Not only should people digital detox they should just scrap most of the things that they pay attention to every day you know what's funny though is permanent how in in a health trend article <laughs> which is shared on social media that their number five is digital detox in which case most people would have never actually found out about the article yeah i believe they call that irony oh word of the day <laughs> yes the the, the pro the proper use of of the term irony yes yeah i think it's just a matter of <clears throat> Do the things you pay attention to bring something positive to your life or are they bringing negativity to your life? And I think most people, which is is evidenced by the way that these companies make their algorithms work, most people's experience will be a negative one because these companies, it's not like it's not really the companies that are doing it. It's that people pay much more close attention to and spend much more time interacting with things that they have a problem with. So anything that gives you a negative thought or feeling on social media in particular, you are going to spend more time engaging with more vigorously. 
Whereas things that give you a positive feeling, you're most likely to just scroll on by and not pay too much attention to. So it's not the technology itself. It's how we use these technologies. And it's just like, it's just the way human beings are. It's our nature to be more engaged with negativity than to be engaged with positivity. And yeah. when you just look at people's like negativity bias of how we see ourselves of, you know, you can do a hundred things right and one thing wrong. And the thing you do wrong is the thing that you will obsess over and give yourself zero credit for the things that you do well. It's just how we're built. And social media and the online world is just this thing that came about that's accessed that part of our brain. And we're seeing the consequences of it right now. For sure. Yeah. Perfection is often the enemy of, of the good enough, right? Um, right. Yeah. And I, like, there's not, you're not going to learn anymore by uh, doom scrolling for stories about um, Donald Trump and the primaries. You know, it's, <laughs> there's, there's nothing more to learn there that's going to be beneficial for you. Uh, and all sorts of stories that are uh, unfolding in, in the news and politics and everything else. It's probably best to just, if, if you're a, a news junkie, just create times, specific times with time limits that you'll check. You know, is that once a day? Is it once a week that you'll kind of do a deep dive on stuff? And probably you'll be a lot better off that way because this constant connection and the constant... Uh, access to information and people pinging and notifications it's like this low level anxiety churning in the background that's going to reduce your heart rate variability <laughs> increase your cortisol levels all those maladaptive things that we don't want to happen yeah the the strategy that i've used because i was never i never paid that much attention to what was happening on social media until COVID. And once we started getting into like lockdowns and, and pressures to, to do certain things, which, you know, you and I have talked about at length in the past that we don't need to get into right now. It made me in an almost obsessive way, pay attention to the news uh, in a way that I thought was helpful at the time, because I wanted to be as informed as possible in as many ways as possible in order to number one, make the best decisions I could. And number two, ensure that if I was going to say something publicly, I had looked at it from enough angles that I was really willing to stand behind what I was saying. Because if you were going to have, you know, you and I both had public opinions on all of these different things. Uh, and if at that time you were willing to have something to say, you had to be willing to accept a certain amount of backlash that was going to come. No matter the, what you said, how you said it, it's just things were, the world was too divided to not face backlash from just being able to, to voice an opinion. So I looked at things in a way that is, you know, pseudo obsessive because I wanted to make sure if I was going to publicly say something that, that no matter what came back, I was going to stand behind what I said. But that started to run its course long beyond being helpful, where I was looking at news, whether it was, you know, primarily on something like Twitter every day under the guise of being informed, but really I was just stirring myself up every single day <clears throat> and I wasn't becoming any better educated. I was just becoming more angry at, at people, at groups of people, political factions. And I resolved the issues I was having 
from social media being a negative experience by just deciding like what like what is this doing for me what how like how is me being in all these places listening to all these people helping me or those around me or making any difference in the things that I care about. And the answer was like, none of this is doing anything. Uh, and I just started to go back to think, to thinking as locally as possible. Like what matters to me most? Well, me, then aside from me, my family, then aside from my family, my local community, whether that's like, you know, a business or like the actual community or like my kids sports organizations and schools and then expanding that out to maybe going as far as I have national concerns but look at how much people care about American politics for instance and you can make the argument of well we're so close and we have such tight political relationships that you know what happens in that election affects what happens here like that's not true Right. Like once you go beyond the local effects of what any like political or otherwise, what any matter can actually do to affect your life and the people you care about, that's a fairly tight, limited circle. And once you need to expose yourself to the thoughts and feelings and opinions of ha and happenings of everything going on worldwide, you're no longer being helpful for the people in places that you say you care about most and you're just getting more angry and you're getting jaded and you start to get to this place where you believe that like the world is this awful place full of terrible people and everything sucks. Like extrapolate that out across the whole world and everyone having access to that sort of attitude based off of what they see. Like that's, that's completely destructive. Whereas if we just thought about like my household, the school my kids go to, the community that we live in. Like, that's what we all pretend we care about most. So those are the things that we should pay the most attention to day to day. And I've, I've had to constantly bring myself back there and say, like, proximity first, like inner circle first, community first, get away from all this other stuff because it can, it's, there's, there's nothing helpful about wow. it. Wow. That was a very thoughtful reflection. I'm glad we uh, decided yeah. to have this therapy session <laughs> yeah and when i go back and look at like occasionally i'll go back to places like twitter and just like see what's mm -hmm. happening and it's like i'm missing y nothing yeah. here and i'll go back and i immediately like you see the same things like nothing changes yeah. it's just different it's just like different crap throwing contests between the same people with the same opinions like it's Nothing changes. None of it matters. Yeah. It's all absolute Any, Anytime like, you, what should you matter? Peek, peek inside a little bit, you're just like, okay, nope, we'll slam that back closed because it's uh, yeah, not, not useful at all. Yeah. I don't want to be somebody who like thinks that that's an experience that I should mm -hmm. have for myself. And it's funny. You, you mentioned like, I don't the, be the different levels of, of politics. And it's funny how people are, are most informed probably about federal politics and then provincial and then municipal. But what affects your life most on a day-to-day -day basis is what's going on in your municipality, in, in your city or the, the town that you live in. So if anything, I mean, I, I imagine most people would not be able to uh, to name the counselor of the ward that they live in in their town. Yeah, it's true. It's like we have people have this thing where if it's local, it can't be important. Mm -hmm. If it's not broad, like the broader it is, the more broad reaching it is, the more important it is. And I think a lot of people 
see this like act this way when it comes to themselves too. Like if I'm not reaching a hundred million people, like I want to be a social media personality because if I can, if there's 10 million people watching me, that makes me important rather than like the person who shows up every day and volunteers for a few hours in their local community makes an actual difference at the ground level in the lives of people that they and their family are surrounded by. Like that is the place where there's impact to be made. But we have this idea where it's like the the people who like my hometown sucks. You know, I grew up here, so it has to suck here. It can't be great. Right. There's got to be like, there's got to be all these other better places to live just by means of this is where I'm from. Therefore it can't be. And then they turn 45 and they got kids and they're just like, oh man, I miss those good old days. They were so simple. And yeah. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. Um, this is a decent segue into the next one, which is social connection through sport. So a lot of what you're talking about is about, you know, community social networks, not online social networks. So like with actual real people, um, the funny example they give is, is pickleball, (laughs) which is a viral, is a viral sport everywhere, (laughs) um, which, uh, I've never tried it, but it, it looks fun for sure. Um, but yeah, totally. I, I, this entirely resonates. So it's, I, I spend a lot of time convincing people to be physically active. Uh, but one of the best ways that you can get buy-in for that is to make it a social enterprise. Um, so even for somebody who's, who's not normally socially active and you're just talking about walking, it's like, well, get a walking buddy, get one of your friends to go with you, get your spouse to go with you, go to the mall, join one of those walking groups there's a lot around like in in my neighborhood here we've got um back roads brews and shoes which is a really cool uh, small business where they've got a coffee shop they've got uh beer on tap but then they've also got a running club and like running gear and they have social events and stuff there's a huge number of people that show up to to their running clubs multiple times per week and it's it's such a, a social thing and that's i think probably people get more out of that aspect of it than even the exercise itself yeah and it's good to it's good to see at least people talking about that shift being made because it's true we've we've become very disconnected and it's not that there aren't any positives of being able to connect in the online world of course there are but we've moved too far in that direction to the point where we think like, oh, you can live with the same amount of community and connectivity and relationship building th- through a computer screen as you can, you know, talking to your neighbor. And it's something that a big difference that I noticed that, I, that I'm sure most people do between when I grew up as a kid and being an adult with my own kids now is that when I grew up as a child, my parents knew, no kidding, every single neighbor on our street, every single neighbor on our street, and all of the neighbors within proximity, they were friends with, they knew them, it was like, they knew the people that they were, they're okay with their kids being around, they knew the people that they were less okay with their kids being around, uh, they knew if, if, you know, if any problems came up, who their people were that they would be able to go to for us. Like that, that fabric, that community fabric was very present and very obvious when I grew up. And now it's like so many people don't even know their neighbor on the left and the right of them. 
I could give you an example of that. So I'm actually, we're really fortunate. We have a wonderful neighborhood uh, where we are and we know everybody around us, uh, but not everybody does. So one of our neighbors, a few doors down, I was chatting with him on the front lawn one day and, and he says to me, he was like, what's the, who's the guy who lives like behind me, like the adjoining backyard neighbor. And like, had no yeah. idea who this person was. He's lived here for seven years. Like it, it's just yeah. un, un, unfathomable to me. And we've done a lot. Like we we've planned community events. We do a like an annual summer barbecue and get the kids out and have a bouncy castle and all that sort of stuff. And it's great. Like people talk about it and they're like, when's the next one? And what can we do to help out? Like those are the things that really I think help to to grow that sense of community, and it makes you feel comfortable, and it makes you feel like you, you belong, and you've got people you can rely on when you're out of eggs. Yeah, well, there's there was a time where it would be offensive for you to let's say move into a place and either not be greeted by neighbors or not going out of your way to introduce yourself to the new people you live around. Where like that would be something that 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 people would take a certain way. Yeah. Like, what's up with this yeah. person? Not interested in knowing who your neighbors are. Where now it's 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 almost the opposite. Where if you move into a place, you would never expect somebody to come by within the first couple of days and right. you know say welcome to the neighborhood and this is who I am and here's a little bit about my family and I want to learn a little bit about your family. Uh, and and. Even a knock at the door this day and age is people are like, whoa, must <laughs> like, be soliciting. Not com- I'm not coming out of the <laughs> exactly, kitchen. Yeah. I'm not getting within view of a so friend's door. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah, the garage door is open, it, it, the car is there. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would think if I, I get for a lot of people like me, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not energized by like going out there and talking to my neighbors. It's not what I want to be doing, <laughs> but it's about, the the importance of those relationships of the people who are in proximity to you are incredibly important. Like if you just think about when you're not there, whether I'm not there and my family's still home or whether we're all not there, like there's people, if they know you, they'll they'll keep an eye on what's happening around your house. They'll they'll be more they'll be more likely to know when there's something happening around your house that's not quite right, when there's someone around there who's not supposed to be there. And these are all very, very important things, especially if you think about kids growing up in a neighborhood. You know, I remember my my parents are going to, my mom especially is going to hate me telling this story. But when I was three, I managed to go out my front door to follow my sisters who were walking to school uh, long after they had already left. So my sisters were of the age where they were walking to school together. My oldest sister, six years older than me. So she would have been like nine at the time. So she's walking my younger sister to school who would have been seven at the time. And this is at a time where a nine and a seven-year-old, it'd be normal for them to to walk to school by themselves. And I just decided that I was going to school too. So I don't know how I left the house without my parents knowing. I'm sure it's not that difficult of a thing to happen if you have a determined three-year-old who's going to go do what they're going to do. And just luckily, one of my neighbors down the street 15 houses down, so an, an old Scottish woman saw me walking by and just knew, like, 
Tommy, the three-year-old, is not just supposed to be out walking around by himself and came out and grabbed me and brought me back home, much to my mom's uh, embarrassment. But like these, those are the types of things that happen. And if you don't have a community around you, like there's people who will see a three-year-old walking by themselves and just think like, yeah, it's not really my business. For sure. I'm just going to assume, I'm just going to assume that that child is supposed to be wandering around at this Mm -hmm. age. You know, and like these, these are things that, that are important. And the more we move towards this, like technologically driven society where, Hey, we can have just as much connection over the computer as we can face to face. What would more likely happen is someone would take a picture of that child posted on the community Facebook page and go, what's wrong with these parents letting their kids wander around? Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. We have, uh, we have some of those community pages here and it's, it's, it's funny seeing uh the nature of some people's posts and how consistent they are there's a, there's a good amount of sharing their grievances within yeah. the group it's the 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 dog uh the dog poop shaming goes on yeah all that stuff like just go talk yeah. to the person <laughs> why are you announcing exactly. this here if you have a problem go speak to the That's person right. and resolve it yeah. anyhow yeah. actually we had we had one one at one point somebody like hid behind one of those big green utility boxes like the bell boxes and at an intersection and took video of cars like doing a rolling stop and then posted that (laughs) it was like people aren't stopping at this intersection it's crazy (laughs) brutal was there someone crossing the road if the answer is no why do you care oh my gosh anyway number seven sobriety and uh just as a as a funny uh, anecdote so they they mentioned this is now being championed by those health conscious millennials and gen z influencers where they have intentionally sober parties and concerts sounds like fun um i yeah. reading between the lines I mean, here i'm are, guessing are... that this group also embraces psychedelics and vaping yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I don't think it's yeah they you know alcohol like getting getting hammered that's like your that's what your parents do we go on like mushroom trips and it's awesome yeah yeah (laughs) yeah maybe maybe there's some of that yeah of course this this is an overwhelmingly positive thing uh and i do notice this in young people not all young people but but more young people than when i grew up like it's being drunk every weekend is not necessarily the cool thing or what people want to do um you know vaping has become a big problem but before that came about cigarette smoking was nowhere near what it was in youth than when i was a kid um and as much as as much as i appreciate some of those wild times and you know the bonds you build with with friends along the way in those states and i think a lot of us like you know just speaking for myself and and my group of friends some of which i you know I'm, I'm still quite close with and keep in touch with the teenage years like the the 14 to the 21 uh is a really awkward time mm-hmm. where i get the gravitation towards drugs and alcohol because a lot of times that can be a way to just make you not feel that social anxiety to not make you constantly thinking about who you are and who you're not like a lot of times alcohol was a way to just like be able to have fun and not worry about all of these awkward, you know, awkward, low self-esteem moments in your life 
But of course, that comes at a potentially high cost because when you are under the influence of alcohol, you are not going to make better decisions. You may not always make bad decisions, but it's certainly not going to help you make good decisions, better decisions. And I can think of many times in my life where I was under the influence of alcohol and made decisions that were just absolutely ridiculous. It could have been very bad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and I'm lucky that they weren't. So while I do have some of this romantic purview of like me and, and my friends where not that we talked to each other about it at the time, but, but never necessarily felt great about ourselves at that time in our life. And alcohol was a vessel for us to like be social with each other. You know what I mean? And like build a bond without all those awkward barriers. When I think about my kids growing up, I would love nothing more, especially with two daughters. I would love nothing more than a scenario where the alcohol culture is just is just gone. Totally agree. Because when you think about when you think about assault, sexual assault, rape, murder, all of these things, like the amount of that that is alcohol fueled, and when I say alcohol fueled, I don't mean like oh, it's a great otherwise a great person, but took this alcohol and then like turned them into a monster, but it does it does in people who are capable of of doing bad things to other people it takes away all of the barriers that might otherwise prevent someone from doing something very very stupid and, and i think it's, and it's called sober second being. thought for a reason yeah it yeah re it removes yeah. that ability to um you know the inhibition obviously that's um <laughs> that's present if you're going to make uh, a pretty severe decision that could affect somebody else's well-being but yeah i mean I, for sure reflecting back we all have those like remember that time when stories when you get together with your friends and a lot of it has to, to do with you know nights when you're you're out and, and drinking and then alcohol aside there were even there were a lot of times you know growing up you're like man those were not great decisions during adolescence and it's amazing that i didn't get like really badly injured or <laughs> something else that that happened but i think that's kind of the nature of uh, of growing up to some extent and certainly we have more of a safety culture now than ever and potentially too far the other way in in some cases um, but yeah I, I share your sentiment that you know I've got two daughters as well and yeah it would be nice not to have to worry about um, alcohol-fueled events occurring I think about being young and like going to the bar and just expecting that maybe we'll get into a fight and how insane that yeah. is. Even just the whole, even just like that whole idea of being in a bar, bunch of like a bunch of young males in there drinking, often looking for trouble. Like, why is that a, a place for people to even be yeah. ever? Yeah, for any yeah, reason wild. like the whole thing is insane to me where i look back on these things have you ever seen that documentary i can't remember the name of the family it's like this well-to-do uh family i think they're in the legal profession um somewhere in the south i believe and uh the murdos and the one son like crashes the boat at night and kills a girl and this is all about the family trying to like cover it up and the dad eventually murders his son who crashed this boat are you aware of this story at all <laughs> no <laughs> well here's all you need to know about how this is relevant to the conversation we're having right now so the son like they're they're out there they're in a the type of city where you can boat from like 
bar to bar. Like you can boat into a bar. That so that's sense what to they me. do. They go sure. in, they go to yeah. a bar. They've been there for a few hours. They come out. The kid's intoxicated. They're taking the boat back home at night. Uh, he's driving the boat way too fast, and they crash, and he he kills one of the girls who's there. A, a buddy of mine, uh, he's had a family cottage his whole life. We used to go out and drink, like on an island in the middle of the lake, middle of the night, boat back at two in the morning, pitch black. And I was talking to him and I was like, can you believe that we used to do that? Not only that we used to do that, but it was, it was authorized by right. parents. Like it was okay. It was okay. Mm -hmm. And just like, like things that I would not accept my children doing and it, today. And I don't say like, that's you, not you a shot. You didn't need a boat parents. license at that point to, to drive a boat. No, no, but it's just like these like absolutely absurd things that yeah. you don't even think twice about when you're at that age. And then you get older and you're a parent and you're like, the the chances of you dying increase exponentially. That's right. When you make when yeah. you make these kinds of There's decisions. always risk. There's a baseline level of risk, but you know, certain things are a lot riskier and unnecessary. <laughs> Yeah. So like being intoxicated can be fun. I get it. Been intoxicated countless times in my life, but I would say, right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say uh, losing the, the alcohol culture in our youth is 100% a net yeah, positive. For sure. Okay. Let's, we can probably blast through these last three here. Number eight is okay. Well, that's hydration <laughs> hacks. Hopefully you don't have a lot to say about that. I think it's ridiculous. Um, you don't need a hack to drink enough water each day it's just just yeah. drink water it's important it's it's essential some would say for, for your bodily functions and if you feel thirsty you haven't had enough to drink if your urine is dark yellow you have not had enough to drink if you stand up and you feel lightheaded and get tunnel vision you're probably not hydrated enough like there's there's a lot of biofeedback that that we can get to know uh, and you know I don't, does, does everybody need a water bottle with the time of day written on it to know that they've had enough water, maybe. That's the size of an oil barrel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> A moonshine bottle. Yeah. Yeah. I have one, I have one hydration hack and that is just that when I wake up in the morning, I have zero appetite for mm. water whatsoever. Uh, so I just put like a natural sweetener in my water in the morning, just cause it makes it more palatable, palatable to me at that time of day. And that's, that's really yeah. it. Fair. I drink two cups of coffee in the morning. That has water in it. <laughs> I do that too, but I make sure that I, I drink, like, I'll drink at least, you know, one to one and a half liters of water in the morning before I drink coffee or anything like that. Yeah. I basically take one of, take one of these guys, uh, my mason jar, fill it okay. up, hammer it. And then I go about the rest yeah. of my day. Yeah, so I do it the other way. I'd have my coffees first and then makes me feel like a normal person. And then uh, I usually, my first bit of water will be usually with what I do, uh, creatine uh, supplement in the morning, which is actually number nine. Creatine supplements. Yeah. A health trend. These are not like, these are not health trends of 2024. Like wearables became a health trend in like 2018 creatine became a health 1995 trend. Perhaps, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah perhaps as like being more recognized as a nootropic and having like like neurodegenerative neurodegenerative uh, yeah. benefits mm -hmm. yeah protection um 
I think I guess that's more of like an emerging trend now is taking it for reasons aside from you know just strength and power development. But creatine's been around forever. It's been around forever. I think uh, the he, like the loading and and like the dose of it was certainly a lot higher when it was more in the the lifting circles. But now as as a just general health supplement, it probably has a lot more evidence than most other health supplements that you would get in the in the vitamin aisle of your grocery store or, or pharmacy, uh, or I guess most people are buying it online, I assume, but, um, yeah, there's, there's great evidence for sure. So for physical performance, uh, but as you said, also for, for cognitive benefits, uh, I think people just also need to be aware though, that it, it does increase the amount of total body water that you hang on to, uh, particularly in your lean body mass. And so if you're taking it consistently, you'll probably gain a little bit of, a, a little bit of weight, uh, mostly in the form of water. And some people do find that that additional water in your interstitial tissue can be uncomfortable. So it, it can, can make your joints feel tight. Um, and, you know, people will stop taking it for that reason. Yeah, it's the one of the most disgusting tasting things that you can drink if you just do like water and, and pure creatine powder. Um, and I found that not that it ever caused me digestive upset. I think it's more just because I've only taken it just creatine and water, mm -hmm. right? Especially when I was younger. So it never made my stomach feel great, but it was probably had a lot to do with the taste of it going down as well. Uh, but yeah, one of the, I would say it is the most uh, well-researched supplement there is, has a great safety profile. The physical benefits are clear. The cognitive benefits are appearing to, to become more clear. Um, and one of very few things that I think most people can come to consensus on that it's uh, it's a very helpful supplement with uh, with a high magnitude of effect for you know considering what you would compare something like that yep. against. Cool. Number ten. Functional fitness. Yeah, loaded so, term. Yeah, for sure. And I I guess it is kind of trendy it's interesting how exercise they always has to reinvent itself and be different in order for it to be trendy but it's really just doing the same things that people have always been doing in gyms uh, yeah. but functional fitness as i see it is referring to the movements that you're doing or compound movements that you'll see in everyday life like squatting and and hip hinging and uh you know, pushing things over your head or, or pulling things, doing rows, that sort of thing. So like all, all those normal, you know, big lift movements that, uh, that you would do in the gym. Yeah. I mean, functional fitness, the, the term in general bothers me just because like, what do you, tr like, what are you trying to say when you call something functional fitness? Because functional fitness implies exercises that, that come with sometimes a load and often a range of motion which is quite honestly not suitable for a lot of people. Whereas like, I get that the idea is a pull-up is more functional than a bicep curl because a pull-up is something that is more useful and you know, you're more likely to apply it in a natural scenario. Like if you're hopping up over the deck, uh, that's something that that's going to be more useful to the average human being than like picking up a can of soup with like an isolated bicep curl, I get it, but it also maybe not so much nowadays, but, um, 
when my gym was one of the few gyms that was doing things that we would call functional fitness, there was almost like this elitism to Mm -hmm. it too. Like my fitness is better than yours because it's functional fitness. When again, it's probably just becoming more mature in the industry, but it's like, what matters is just that people who aren't exercising start to exercise. And you can argue that functional fitness is better or they'll get more out of it, which is maybe true, but you also have to think about accessibility of exercise and like someone who goes into a good life and there's a machine circuit that sort of restricts what they can and can't do on there, take some of the risk out of the movement. They can do it on their own. That's the type of thing where when I was younger, I'd say like, that's a waste mm-hmm. of time. Come do functional fitness. And here's the thousand reason why, where it's like, it has to be accessible to people and uh, at a, a gym that's, that's more expensive and comes with a coach. And there's a big learning curve to the exercises you're going to do. Like when you think about functional fitness, that's kind of standard for the functional fitness environment. Whereas like people just need to do something and it has to be accessible both financially and for what their degenerated body is able to do safely, which functional fitness is not always the, the best avenue. For yeah, that. I fully agree. And I was g- going to use that exact example. I think functional fitness sort of gets at, you know, we don't use machines that isolate body movements. So like you, you don't get on and do your just your isolated hamstring curls or your knee extensions. But there's nothing wrong with that. If you can pay literally like 12 bucks a month for a Planet Fitness membership and it's a sea of machines, but if you show up and you go and you do the machine cir- machine circuit regularly and it's getting you active and it's building muscle, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, and if you're doing functional fitness outside of a, a facility where you have to pay and have coach and group classes, then likely that person already has a foundation of athleticism. They've trained before. They know their way around movements. They can do a home gym and sort of guide themselves, which is not everybody. Yeah, like if you you take the average even 45-year-old these days and then you just put them in a gym and put a barbell on their back and say, okay, squat. That person can maybe safely squat a quarter squat. Whereas like the vast majority of people can do a full hamstring curl, can do full extension at the knee and can do isolated movements that give them a limited joint, but full range of motion within that joint. So you have to ask yourself, what's better taking a deconditioned person and trying to fit them into this box of movements where they're highly limited and there's this big learning curve and or just going and using machines that allow them to safely get a full range of motion. Yeah, you're not going to get as strong. You're not going to burn as many calories. There's all of these different things. But what's definitely not going to get someone strong, what's definitely not going to help somebody use energy and burn calories is going to a gym for two days and then never coming back because they're so frustrated and feel like, oh, fitness isn't for me. Because if this is fitness and this if this is what I have to do to get in shape, like I'm just... I'm just going to be out of shape. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm beyond recovery. Sure. Whereas like there's all these other different types of fitness that are more accessible to people, like starting with walking, right? Can you walk for an hour for more? Like nine out of 10 people aren't even walking. Right. So that's, a, that's like, who cares about functional fitness when most people don't even walk? Yeah. 
Functional fitness. I, I would is for argue walking people. is functional fitness. <laughs> it is the it's, most functional yeah, fitness. Very functional, practical. Well, then I guess that just defeats my whole tirade. Totally deflated your entire argument right there. I take it all Good. back. It is all about functional. Okay, fitness. perfect. <laughs> all right, that's it. We made it through. We probably blathered on for long enough here. I certainly have, but that's no surprise. Anything else you want to wrap no, up man, with? That's it. Okay. Oh, what am I doing here? I have too many options. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice. And is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast. <laughs>